I'm Prathamir Gurdbole. I'm the partner at TradeStream LLP. We make software for algorithmic traders in India and US. And we also trade the markets in both countries. Before this, I was an algorithmic trader in India and I've worked as a programmer in the US. I have a master's in financial engineering from New York University and a computer engineering degree from Mumbai. So today's talk is about how the economic trajectory of India and East Asia was diverged into two different paths entirely. And this was the result directly from the policy decisions that these two blocks made differently. So after the end of the Second World War, the world split into two camps. They did not trade much with each other. There was not much political interaction, but there was a lot of trade networks and ties within these blocks. So one was led by the US, which had then, you know, they formed the NATO group for military defense, but it was accompanied by very strong economic ties. So the US offered preferential trade access to its market for its allies. So Germany, Japan, United Kingdom, France, etc. All these countries were able to manufacture and export their goods to US with very low or zero tariffs. And this was very important for them because if you are Japan after World War II, most of your industry has been destroyed in the war. It's the same story for Germany. It's the same story for France. And it would have taken decades probably for those countries to recover from selling to their own consumers. Whereas instead of the domestic markets, they were able to export the US, which had a completely intact country, a very large population and much higher purchasing power. So by exporting to US, these countries were able to grow much faster than they could have on their own. Instead of maybe 3% growth, they were able to get 8, 10, even 12% growth. And this helped them catch up really fast. This, this was first started in Japan, where Japan, would, Japan was growing at something like 12% a year in the 1960s. And this was almost entirely because they were exporting to the US. The second advantage that East Asia had was the geography. So when Japan started exporting to the US, they moved up the value chain. So initially they would start by making something that is very low value, but eventually they would move on to something high value, such as in, in, in initially they would make maybe the plastic casings for transistors or electronic items, but they would eventually move on to make the electronics itself. Now, when they moved up higher in the value chain, they ended up outsourcing the low margin products to the nearby countries. So instead of Japan making the plastic, Japan would now make the electronics and Taiwan or Korea or China would make the low margin products. Because they were so geographically close by, it was very easy for them to relocate the low margin to nearby countries while still maintaining their efficiency. So. This was largely the trajectory for the three smaller economies, which is Japan, Taiwan, and Korea. Japan is still relatively much larger than the other two, but not as large as China. China is a special case study because in many ways it is very similar to India. It has an equally large population. It started out very similarly. They had a legacy of colonialism and unfair trade treaties, which left them lagging behind. In fact, China faced much worse situation in the 1950s because of the civil war that lasted in China from 1920s to 1950. Uh, even after that, in fact, they spent a lot of time, almost the next 25 years, making different experiments. They had something called the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, where they experimented with different types of communist ideology. And none of these were good policies. It, it set them back behind, just like it set us back. But after 1976, they realized that we need to focus on the economy. And the only way you get, uh, what do you call it, globally uh, prestige is by having a big market and a big economy. So one thing that really helped them is not having elections or a democracy. When you don't have elections, there is no pressure to pursue policies that are required to win elections. So in, in India, for example, there is a 
automatic pressure to give subsidies or uh, benefits to some segment of the population in order to get their vote. Because if one party does not, some other party offers it and it becomes a race to the bottom. Whereas in China, because they did not have to worry about elections, they could think more longer term instead of short term. They could invest in bridges, ports, railways, etc., which did not have any immediate payoff, but it helped them get competitive in the long run. Now, because China invested heavily in infrastructure, they got very competitive in the export market. As an example, it was at one point cheaper to ship something from Shanghai to Mumbai than it was to, to you know, transfer it by road from Kolkata to Mumbai. And this is because we have a lot of roadblocks. This is pre-GST. Maybe it has improved now. And uh, so, so basically, China could beat anybody else in pricing. They could sell goods much cheaper. They could get market share. And they kept the currency really low. So what China did is they could import raw materials or mine them locally, use that cheap labor, the cheap currency, and export to the big market just like Japan did before them. Now, whatever they get from this trade, they would put it back in more infrastructure. So if you had maybe 10,000 kilometers of highways, they would now take that surplus and make it 20,000. Now you get even more competitive. Now, this competitiveness leads to even more exports, which in turn leads to even more infrastructure. And this creates a very virtuous loop of sorts. Not just that. They also help their businesses directly. They would give them very cheap capital. So businesses in China could borrow at maybe 4%, 5% when their competitors in India would borrow at maybe 10 or 15%. So in, in businesses where the margins are thin, this can make the difference between being profitable or not being profitable at all. And note that China started this in the 1970s, whereas India did not begin this process until 1991. So China had almost a 15-year head start ahead of India. What they did even better is they protected the local industries first, and they made sure that they grow big and competitive before opening the market to foreign companies. So they protected steel, iron ore, or even technology sectors, they have something called a great firewall, which prevents uh, you know, Chinese citizens from accessing the internet. They, they can't access all of the internet. They, the government decides which one, which sites to let them through. And so what they, what this ended up doing is they simultaneously helped local companies grow big while handicapping outside companies. So this helped them create really big co companies within which had a lot of surplus profit that would enable them to compete globally. So the government was involved in every step in helping the businesses grow big. It was, uh, the interests were very aligned. Finally, the one-child policy uh, deserves a mention because India and China have, I think India is a little ahead of China now, but uh, from the 70s, while even if India and China were growing at the same rate, because India's population was growing you know, still at a high rate, the per capita incomes or living standards did not rise as much. Whereas in China, all of the GDP growth directly translated into higher living standards. So while we, it did improve in India, it could not improve at the same rate as China. So now we finally come to India. And we started in, we covered it in two phases. The first being what we call Nehruvian socialism from the first 20 years. And then the second 20 years under uh, Indira Gandhi or uh, a successor Rajiv Gandhi. So we inherited a fairly unindustrialized economy relative to the West or to Japan, but it, it was fairly intact despite the violence in the partition or, you know, any of the other uh, integration of the princely states, relative to China, it was very stable because we did not have any civil war the way China did. Uh, this led to, and, and when the world split into those two camps, we decided that we don't want to be part of either. Uh, perhaps it was an idealistic decision or political, but 
we ended up missing out on both camps so we did not receive much aid either from the us or from the ussr we did receive some it's not zero but it was very opportunistic and specific to certain projects or specific instances and in fact when we had the indo china war in 1962 uh, we had to go and request the us for help uh, the war ended soon so we did not require much but that policy of non alignment really hurt us in the same way in 1971 during the liberation of bangladesh it was the situation was reversed and we had to seek help from the ussr to keep us away so this could have been avoided entirely if we had chosen one block and it it was not unreasonable uh, india had very strong trade networks with the west mostly the uk due to the Uh, british presence earlier and it would have been a natural course to be integrated into the trade networks just like japan or europe the second was because india was not very industrialized the government decided that they knew best how to do it they decided that people don't know how to invest the money themselves or manage the business the government will tell them how to invest it. so everything needed a permit if you wanted to start a factory you wanted to expand it you wanted to buy some land and build something on it all of it needed a permit and permits meant uh, dealing with the bureaucracy you had to explain to them why and the policies might change the policies really uh, they were not often stable either there's a very uh, famous uh, joke where jrd tata the industrialist spoke to the prime minister mr nehru and uh, mr nehru famously said uh, don't talk to me about profit it's a dirty word and this was really uh, not what india needed at the time because if you are in one of the lowest gdp per capita you, you're unindustrialized then profit is exactly what you need because you need growth and uh, so we actually grew at we didn't be, you see this chart here this is the chart of india's gdp growth in the 60s and 70s so we barely touched 5% in some years in most years it was somewhere between 2 or 3% and note that this was a time when population growth was also approximately the same maybe 2% to 3% so essentially on a per capita basis there was no growth at all the the third decision we did uh, apart from the non alignment and license raj is it's called a freight equalization policy so what the government decided is in order to supply raw materials at low cost to the ports which for exports they would cover they would basically subsidize the transport of these crucial raw materials to the ports from the interior states so for example if there's a coal mine or aluminum mine in bihar then and if your factory is in hyderabad or somewhere in, on the coast then in mumbai maybe then the government would make sure that you don't pay more for this coal in mumbai right, instead of in bihar now this sounds great but what it did is it really discouraged any investment in the interior states because if you could get the same raw materials at the same price on the port and the coast then why would you spend more money or you know building something in the interior which would be which would where it would cost you more to transport the finished goods later because normally what should have happened is the investment should have happened in the interior states closer to where the raw materials are because it was cheaper but by artificially making the good the raw materials cheaper at the ports they pulled that investment away from the interior states towards the ports and in fact this policy was there in place until the 90s which should have been removed long long ago now all of this resulted in a very uh uncompetitive business sector they could not compete globally in fact they could not compete even locally and foreign companies would routinely have better products at lower prices so this this led to for example you would have to wait for 10 years for a scooter in the 60s or 70s and uh, same for cars for telephones you could you could have demand you could have the purchasing power but you still wouldn't get it so all of this really hobbled the economy it set the stage for more populist politics it led to kind of a, a vilification of businesses and 
as a businessman it really did not make sense to take risks and invest in r&d or innovation because there was no payoff from it you would not be competitive with a foreign business no matter what you did so it was always better to be a kind of trading business where you bought something from abroad and sold it locally or bought it from one place and sold it in another because by that way you don't have to bear the risk of the innovation or the building of the factories and so on so this set the stage for the next uh, type of economics which is uh, under indira gandhi ji and this was uh, a heavy i would say an increased bout of state intervention so since the businesses didn't were not growing they were not competitive uh, the government decided that the problem is not too much of government it is too less of government intervention and they increased it even a notch further so we ended up taking over a lot of banks uh, most of the what you call the public sector banks today were once private banks so most of them got taken over by the government the, the government decided that they would decide who to lend where to lend which sectors uh, provide banking where it was needed and as a result what started in the 1970s in 20 years 90% of all banking assets were owned by the government uh this also started the npa cycle so to say because once the appointees became political the there was crony lending and lending for political favors and so every few years you would have a set of defaults when the economy slowed down then the money would get written off the taxpayers would put more money and recapitalize the banks this became like a regular feature we didn't stop with the banks we nationalized oil companies we nationalized insurance companies airlines uh, coal almost everything so at one point the government was the largest business in the country and it it really had no incentive to do it efficiently this was followed by uh, an act called fera which is a uh, foreign exchange regulation act so the government said uh, it asked foreign companies that they should dilute their stake in their own subsidiaries in india to less than 50% somewhere around 40% now if you are a foreign company that invested in setting up an office or a factory in india then you would want to have the majority stake in it because it's your risk it's your capital so this act essentially forced them to become minority shareholders in their own businesses and this was again meant as a populist measure to show that they are not selling out the country to foreigners or something but it ended up in an exodus of companies because so for example ibm which was one of the leaders in computing at the time they decided that they did not want to give away so much technology and you know risk losing control over the business when they were taking all the risk so they packed up and left so we even even consumer company like coca cola for example they also left uh, in the 1970s uh, because they did not want to sell 60% so this led to uh, a slowdown because we lost this know how with the people who would have hired at those jobs for like computing in the early days we lost that edge we could have captured it by having foreign companies set up offices here and those people could have then started something on their own the way china did but we missed that bus and well of course finally we went uh, took the income tax to 90% at the peak so this essentially really encouraged what you call black money today because if you are making paying 90% then you are essentially working for the government for free so this this parallel economy really grew when tax rates went so high there was no incentive to pay any tax or report any income uh the flip side to this was that uh the workers also agitated for better pay better conditions and you would have unions that were very strong they would frequently go on strikes for example the bombay mills in the 1970s and they essentially would strike for so long that eventually the industry would just collapse so in bombay for example the strikes were lasted for so many months that the businesses never recovered they just shut the business went to other states and everybody lost their jobs this was not really a departure from the first phase of 
1950 to 1970, but it became much worse in the second case. And this first chart is India's current account, which is a kind of similar to the trade deficit, but also includes other items. So we can see that from the 1970s, we steadily went on running into steeper and steeper deficit. And this is uh, the same same data, but as a percent of the GDP. And this was a time when countries like Japan were running current account surpluses of somewhere around 5% of GDP. So not only were we not operating at break-even, but in fact, we were operating at a steep current account deficit. So eventually, this spiraling loop created a situation where we ran out of forex, forex reserves, because we just could not earn enough to pay for imports. Your, your local businesses are not competitive, so you import whatever you need. You, your imports are much more than your exports, so eventually you have a crisis because you don't have enough dollars to pay for the imports. So in 1991, the RBI was left with about two months or three months of reserves. And it, it was a disaster. It was almost a point where they would have to default on the debt. So RBI went to the IMF for a loan and the IMF was not willing because they said this, this would be like throwing good money after bad. We can bail you out now, but it's not going to solve any problem. So the IMF required that the Indian government had to dismantle the license Raj and do away with a lot of anti-business policies that they had enacted. And really, we had no choice at the time and it was politically unpopular, but we somehow pushed through these reforms in 1991 and we got the bailout. The RBI had to pledge its gold with the IMF at one point as a security in return for the loan. So this, this crisis really uh, was the turning point. I think people realized that we cannot continue as usual. There is no going back from this. And we needed those hard structural reforms. I would say we did not do all the reforms. Some of them are still pending, but we have come a long way since then. Much has improved. So as a quick uh, overview of how we deferred, the first was the focus on exports. Now, because East Asia could export a lot more, they were naturally able to grow at a much higher rate than India could possibly grow without exports. Now, if you are a poor country or a middle-income country, it is the fast track to growth. And of course, being export-oriented means you are competitive globally because you can get those exports only by being the most efficient or having the best products. Now, these products are not just for exports, but also for your internal markets. So the standard of living improves not just for the country uh, you're exporting to cheap goods, but also in your own country as the same high-quality goods get sold locally. The second difference was micromanagement of businesses, which uh, we had a bureaucracy, which was still a holdover from the colonial era, where the focus is on extraction. So, for example, if uh, there's an, another anecdote, it's uh, from Mr. Narayan Muthi, the founder of Infosys. He traveled, he wanted to travel to the US in the 1980s for a customer visit. And he had to explain to the bureaucrats on why he was going, how much money he would be allowed to take somewhere out of just a few hundred dollars. And uh, they would they had to seek permits, which would take months to buy computers. And they had to explain to the bureaucrats why they were why they needed this computer, why not this configuration, why not the other. And by the time they got the permits, sometimes the devices were obsolete. So th this was a bureaucracy that was designed to only maximize revenue for the government. It was not designed to help businesses because it was from a colonial times when the British state was designed for extraction, not for growth. The third is spending on infra, where India spends a lot of money even today on what we call social spending, providing uh, you know, things like free food or free water and housing and so on. And these are all of these were absent in East Asia. People were largely dependent on friends or family for their support, for pensions, etc. And saving this money early on helped them put that money where it mattered. 
because if you put that money in infrastructure and energy and ports and education you get competitive globally and that competitiveness gets you exports and then when you have the surplus from the exports then you can afford to spend on giving people extra things but if you don't invest in these infrastructure early on and you spend it on uh, giving people more pensions or uh, more handouts then you cannot get competitive globally the third is what you what i call uh, scarce resource allocation through patronage so in india you have to cater to different interest groups in order to win an election and it is just unavoidable it is a trade off of having democratic elections something that china did not have to worry about and as a result you cannot enact certain policies even though they may be beneficial in the long run because people vote in self interest and that is often at odds with what is good for the country as a whole so it's something that is perhaps may not have been possible for us to do what china did exactly but we could have uh, done a lot less of policies that gave handouts and focused it more on uh, building something for the long term growth finally i think population growth played a major role in living standards because china's one child policy helped uh, really helped them in terms of increasing uh, per capita living standards because all of that growth accrued to a smaller pool of people whereas in india when it's growing you have to redistribute and you know spend more and more to some extent it has its trade offs because china has a demographic cliff of sorts because once that uh, generation has passed away then we have a much smaller set of people to consume and to buy houses and work in factories something that india does not have to worry about finally the foreign investments and partnerships so because we were not part of any trade blocks or free trade zones we could not be competitive in exports again uh, it all comes back to being able to export to a rich country but it also led to missing out on uh, the latest technology for instance when us started offshoring manufacturing to china china used access to its market as uh, as a negotiating chip so china would tell companies that if you want to sell in china you must have a joint venture with a chinese company and transfer your technology to them over say 5 years and for the american companies it it was not a bad deal because they were able to get approvals permits everything quickly by partnering with a government company or somebody that the government favored and in return they had to give away some of their technology but it was a worthwhile trade off because they could use that the profits from the that extra market into building better technology while the locals in china got this technology for much cheaper than they would have if they had you know had to invest in r&d on the road so india did not in fact uh, use its market as a negotiating tool at all we have always been very open for foreign companies to come and do business and while it's it's good but we have not often had reciprocal deals where we do not have access to those countries markets but we have provided access to other countries for our markets we also had a severe energy dependence we import most of our oil even today and that really limits the number of choices you have and uh in in terms of geopolitics for example if you have a war or a conflict you have to depend on other countries who supply you the oil you cannot make policy decisions that would turn them away and if they stop selling you oil you are stuck the last point is the labor and union stranglehold which like we spoke about earlier in the bombay textile mills because if the unions are very strong and uh, they are politically linked then it often leads to an endless cycle of holding businesses hostage they they would demand more concessions uh, otherwise they won't work the the business even you know gets disrupted repeatedly and eventually they move to other places which don't have unions or they just pull out and import those goods instead so overall this is where we really deferred these are about uh, eight or seven or eight points and it's not that we uh, completely deferred like other countries did have some of these problems as well like labor and unions is an issue in china as well but it it's 
the interests are fairly aligned since there are no competitive elections uh, they don't have to worry about a competitive race to the bottom where one party offers x and the other party has to offer even more in order to stay relevant so this is the chart of our growth after 1991 you can see that this uh, picked up really imme- almost immediately after we got rid of the license raj it's the same people the same country but we from below 3 5 from 3, 2 and 3% we are now at 8 and 9% uh, after the license raj is gone in fact this was derisively called as uh, the hindu rate of growth in the 70s by an economist and uh, so surprisingly some of the same people seem to be able to go faster once the license raj is gone uh one industry that deserves mention is the it industry because despite all the handicaps that other sectors have it has done fairly well in fact it has been the engine of growth for most part and i want to talk a little bit about why it is so so any any sector or industry needs uh, a few raw materials uh, skilled labor and uh, access to energy or infrastructure and um, consumer market now for the it industry the problem that plagued the other sectors for example labor unions was not an issue because their their workforce was very highly educated mostly engineers or at least graduates and there, there was no streak of unionism among the the, edu- the people who went to college the second is they could deliver services remotely they did not have to rely on india's ports or bad roads or anything they could deliver things on the internet and having internet really changed the game because now we were at par with somebody in germany or in china japan practically anywhere the third is we had uh, reasonably good english compared to uh, europe or china and this is this really helped india in the 90s to get customers in the us so we actually grew by doing what east asia did but only in one sector which is the it industry most of india's it industry's revenue today comes from exports and it's mostly to the us so we did in fact learn the model but we only did it in one sector and we did it in the it industry because the government did not interfere in it we did do a little bit to help it like we set up secs to exempt them from taxes and get them more exports so you see the sectors where we actually did it right it has worked really well uh, we in, in the it industry but we could never replicate this in other sectors which we should have uh finally this is a, a question i get uh, often you see this discussion online where uh, being atmanirbhar or uh, you know current policies are being called as license raj 2.0 and i think this is really misunderstanding uh, license raj was about uh, putting curbs on the way businesses operated internally specific to their own business it's not about the country's policy as a whole and that that's not what we are doing today we are not restricting businesses on what they can do we have in fact cut regulation a lot uh, you can argue about whether the gst website works or whether it is the best design that's a separate issue but as a whole this is this is nothing like what the license raj was we are doing something differently uh, in fact this is guided by geopolitical considerations because world trade has pretty much been flat since 2014 or 15 and if you do not have any growth in exports then you obviously cannot make a policy that focuses on exports because you cannot get any more exports now but what you can do is you can focus on reducing your imports so when you say you focus on being atmanirbhar it means you are making your local businesses competitive enough that you can compete with imported goods and you reduce your imports so i think this is a very sound policy it's something that should be supported uh, we are not, it's not license raj and it if it requires having tariffs against countries that dump goods below cost then that is good policy it should be done as a economic so this is a, in a summary what we did differently and uh, what east asia did uh, is open for questions So I'll start with a question. 
I was very intrigued with that anecdote that you shared about Nehru and Tata. That profit is right. a bad word. Right. So the policies were designed for no private profit, but uh, yes to extraction through right. license and permits and quotas. What what would you say about this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the policy at the at the top level, at the politician level, was one where uh, we were still perhaps very much in the Gandhian view of uh, economy being about the villages or you know about uh, not about big factories and lot of profits. It was still very socialist in its outlook, and this was uh, I feel a very naive view. This is not how geopolitics worked or how power was how power worked globally. You had to have a strong economy and a military to be you know to be taken seriously. And it wasn't, in fact, until 1962 when we had the Indo-China war that this realization dawned that we can't be outside of any major blocks and you know ignore the economy. We have to make sure we are at par. Uh, at the same time, the bureaucracy, which is the IS or other branches, were also uh, still uh, in a very colonial mode where. the focus was on how do we get the most tax revenue out of it the impact on the business or the people's livelihood was very secondary so you had even very recently in even today for example you will have disputes where the an officer will attach a property or shut down a factory or so on and the dispute can drag on for months and or even years at times and that's a entirely lost business now if you are a big company you can survive it because you have redundancy you have other factories and different employees but if you are a small business it's closed your customers are gone they are buying from somebody else so there is no there are no repercussions for overreach of bureaucracy and because they don't bear the cost of it and it it doesn't make any difference to them it's uh, simply a tax revenue target so we we should change this focus from being an adversarial relationship to having one where we reward or penalize the government for helping the economy atma nirbhar bharat seems to have been a very knee jerk reaction out of the blue just after covid suddenly because imports were uh, or or you know covid crisis led to companies cutting out china from the thing it seemed like a knee jerk reaction and not a well thought out long term strategic policy and my guess is that that is the reason that suddenly this conversation about license raj and such is coming up do you have a comment on that so uh, i i don't think this was uh, knee jerk i think this was long overdue i think covid is just the trigger that finally brought it about because if you look at trade growth not just of uh, raw materials or so but of all manufactured goods and consumer goods then it has been flat since 2014 there has been no growth at all so if you try to build uh, infrastructure for exports now like there is going to be no market for it so there is no point focusing on exports you have to instead focus on reducing your imports and there is no better opportunity really than covid to you know take the initiative and shut out countries that are anyway adversarial for example china so uh, in china for example the prime driver to operate a factory is not necessarily profit but to keep people employed so if you have debt that you have to pay interest on then even if you are operating at a loss you would operate it because if you don't operate at all the loss is bigger so they they can manufacture something at 100 you know 100 rupees for example and maybe it cost them 150 to make but they would still sell it at 100 at a loss because they are reducing their loss by making it and selling it and for an indian competitor where it costs maybe 160 or 180 if you import these chinese goods at 100 then you are just destroying your economy for no reason this is bad policy in china translating into loss of business for an indian business so if you have high tariffs that make it unviable to import that's fine it's not really a problem one argument against uh, atmanirbhar bharat was largely around that mobile imports for example into the country have revolutionized the 
uh, has been the cause of the mobile revolution and access to information across the country communication right. and so on and so forth and by bringing in these import licenses under atmanirbhar bharat you are going to actually end up curbing um, some of uh, you know import led innovation or import led empowerment of of our people do you have a comment on that as well mm. i mean when you say you import something cheaper uh, you are basically transferring that benefit to the consumer whereas when you put tariffs and make something more expensive you are transferring that benefit from the consumer to the producer so it's it's all about a trade off of who the benefit should accrue to we definitely did benefit a lot from having cheap smartphones but i think we are at a point where we are uh, a big enough market that an exporter would rather take the risk you know put the capex and assemble the phone locally as opposed to uh, just leaving the market entirely because of the tariffs and in fact if you look at uh, addition by value it's not that high e- even in china for example in an iphone it's not even i think 10% it's just purely on volume uh, any smartphone today your display comes from japan your uh, ram comes from korea your processor comes from taiwan and all of these account for bulk of the value addition to your phone and it's actually just assembled in china or maybe the machining for the bodies done in china so these are all things we can most certainly do in india and especially if you keep the chinese imports out through tariffs and now we are offering this production linked incentive so i think this is a fairly good policy thank you pratamesh you know i uh, i think this is really enlightening another overlooked sector is you know and especially that has gained more onus and impetus is the pharmaceutical sector right mm-hmm. india is one of the largest uh, pharmaceutical api manufacturers post covid it's gained even more prominence one thing that you touched upon that i really appreciated was the way that china undercuts right its competitors so yeah. uh, uh, you know in the pharma industry while we are the largest api producers which is active pharmaceutical ingredient all the raw material for it including the acids salts even something like calcium carbonate which india has in abundance right the refined version all comes from china and the reason which you very eloquently pointed out is because of them undercutting prices albeit at a loss yeah. so the big uh, players indian pharma players don't want to get into it the small players don't survive yeah. uh, a lot of people have pitched the idea of public private partnerships because once we get the raw material uh, you know supply chain internally right it could be a game changer because that's going to influence not only pharmaceutical but also nutraceutical and consumer healthcare which collectively would rival it in terms of you know a potential monetary power right in terms right. of both import as well as potential export so i just wanted to ask what are your thoughts about you know pitching uh, public private partnerships you know for such endeavors which may not have short term gains but in the long term would turn out to be highly beneficial uh i think this is a kind of uh, this involves trade offs that we may have to choose whether we want those trade offs or not for example at the state level you have uh, several industrial houses or business houses with long history of collaboration with that state government for example uh, reliance in gujarat and uh, jamnagar refinery and you, you know you, there's always a political risk that if you do this cooperation you know we have democracy and elections so your opponents will create problems they will say you are favoring this industry you are favoring this company and that will lead to maybe some court cases agitations and so on so i think it's it's fraught with risks because on one hand we do need to do it but on the other hand we have a political risk that uh, doing so will mean uh, creating some winners and losers which leads to uh, political instability so i'm i'm not actually sure whether we should really be pushing for it or just let it happen on its own and support only through monetary incentive like we're doing with the purchase of uh, sorry pli the performance linked incentive where if you make x value of goods then we give you uh, a reimbursement of sorts directly i think that may be a better model thanks for the great talk uh one question i have is with regards to the it sector so uh, the way it sector has survived is because uh, we, we had a large arbitrage opportunity with respect to uh, other countries now this opportunity is shrinking because the salaries are increasing in our country 
and uh, the IT sector, uh, the salaries are remaining stable uh, if you compare them with the previous decade. So the salaries have almost remained stable uh, and the arbitrage gap is now shrinking. So do you think uh, that uh, we would be heading to a crisis, a bit of a crisis in the IT sector in the near term uh, due to this? And uh, another thing I wanted to ask is, uh, will we need, need a large uh, revolution in the IT sector for that? So this has two parts. The first, which you said, uh, salaries are flat and the wage differential is shrinking. So will this make it uncompetitive? Uh, I think salaries stopped growing, like you said, long ago. It's actually because the rupee kept depreciating against the dollar since 2011 that uh, we're still able to continue with the old models. Uh, maybe if the rupee had still been at 50, this would have been obsolete long ago. So I think there is definitely a shift required, uh, but it is also happening. It's not that we are doing the same kind of work that we were doing uh, 15 years ago. So there's something called uh, robotic process automation that's really catching on. And it's about uh, companies discovering that they need to automate more of their jobs. And ironically, while they're automating some some workflows it also uh, requires you a lot of consulting and it work to do it to begin with so i think the indian it industry is not something to be written off yet it it should adapt it should stay relevant for at least another decade and that wage while wage arbitrage is really not the game anymore i think it's moving more to uh, what you call higher end in the value chain so we started with just really BPOs in the uh, you know, 90s and the same companies transitioned to making applications and maintaining them and tech support. And now we, you know, many of those are moving to consulting or uh, building things like, you know, I, even internally, for example, we did not see as much involvement from the companies, say, 20 years ago versus today, the Ministry of Corporate Affairs or the Passport Services and so on. So I think there is a lot of scope that the companies can do, whether they will do, I mean, it's uh, up to them. Uh, in terms of non-IT, I think there is a lot of growth that is yet to come in this decade, especially because IT is what you will call outsourcing, whereas I think now what we will see is offshoring. So there are a lot of American companies who will, you know, because COVID really forced people to work remotely, they are finding that if you can work from some remote town in the US, then you might as well work from Bangalore. There's no need for that person to be in the US. So you will see a lot of offshoring as com large companies or mid-sized companies in uh, in the West will offshore their IT departments or parts of it to India. And this is no longer just tech support or what you call a cost center. This will be the breadwinners. So for example, companies like Uber or Amazon have, do actual R&D or uh, data centers and even research in India. So I think these jobs will go up. Uh, there is a lot of scope for offshoring and we're just uh, in the early days of it here. There is a question uh, sent to me uh, here. It says this Atmanirbhar Bharat can only happen till there are retaliatory repercussions tax-wise in case of West or military-wise in case of China, etc. And eventually, the protectionist policy created in India only leads to no quality improvement, but maximizing profits at cost of quality status quo. Do you say something about this? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it remains to be seen. It is a possibility. Uh, it's never in like zero or one. It's always some grades in between. There might be some sectors where we don't do as well and we worsen the outcome. But it's, it's not really... Uh, fair to say that it will happen across industries and across all sectors. We the, the issue with China is it a stalemate? We don't know how it will be resolved. Uh, yes, as far as the West is concerned, uh, I think there is we should make a distinction between tariffs or goods versus services. So currently there are there is no restriction on services, and it's something both IT or tech can capitalize on. Uh, as far as goods, we we aren't really much of an exporting country anyway. So it's not like tariffs will really hurt India much because we were never as competitive in most high-value sectors to begin with. So, you know, trade wars don't really matter to us as much because 
ironically because we were never that competitive typically india is always compared in asia with singapore um i didn't see that uh, you covering that part in your presentation was there any specific reason i would like to know if there was i think singapore is a uh, very different from something the size or scale of india because it's a city state its challenges and uh, options are very different versus what we had uh, I, i i mean i'm really uh, i'm a big fan of what singapore has achieved they went from being a very poor city state to a very prosperous one and what they did is uh, very hard for any other city state to replicate considering that they had no almost no natural resources either but i think in terms of policy choices what worked for them was not really uh, a policy choice for something as large as india or as diverse for example singapore's gdp is mostly from trade and that's because of its geographic location as a very strategic port whereas india while it it's strategic and all it's not really uh, a place where which is you know where high traffic high uh, container traffic passes through en route to a big market so what they could do is not what we could do and vice versa uh i have a question in line uh, with atmanirbhar bharat uh, and uh, in context with whatever is happening on the china border uh, i think what that has taught us is that we can't really be dependent on uh, on russia or the us or anybody else for arms and ammunition uh and with this do you think uh, you know there will be a lot of investments going into the defense sector or uh, do you see that as a sunrise sector for india and if yes uh, you know uh, what would be your comment on that uh so i'm not a, like an expert on uh, military tech really but uh, from what i have studied it is definitely a big opportunity i think the government has realized that they need to make a domestic military industrial complex to which is self sufficient in uh, providing ammunition guns etc uh but there is a problem in terms of there are already startups or established companies that have built very good products and they have never been able to get orders from the government because ultimately if you invest in uh, the research and you build a product but you don't get orders then it's wasted it's it's in fact going to kill your risk taking by companies and they will not uh, bother with it so there are in fact cases where uh, the us military or other countries armed forces have ordered uh, products from indian companies and uh, local uh, army or navy has not done so and they actually depend on uh, selling to foreign militaries instead of to the local so i think we need to translate that policy change into action but if they can actually hopefully do it soon then it's a great market a very good sector 